Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. In 2019, we spoke to Darcy Ehrlich, who at that time was waging a tireless campaign alongside her two sisters to see their former high school principal, Malka Leifer, brought back to Australia to face their allegations of sexual abuse. Leifer had fled Australia with her family to Israel when she learned the allegations had been made against her in 2008 and was finally found guilty of 18 rape and child sexual abuse charges in April of this year, 2023. Judge Mark Gamble set her sentencing date for August 24 this year. There seems little doubt that Malka's gender played a part in the disbelief her victims faced. Just weeks ago on Australian True Crime, we spoke to John Rouse, one of the founding members of Task Force Argos, the world-leading team of analysts dedicated to investigating online child exploitation and abuse, who told us he believes female sex offenders are more prevalent than we realise. Uh, look, it's always been underreported, I would suggest to you. We actually dedicated one of our conferences to the issue of, of female offenders. And look, this, this opens up another completely separate conversation around how the courts deal with female offenders. In the next episode of Australian True Crime, we'll hear from a woman who was victimised as a child in a Catholic institution by a female offender. But today, we're sharing Dussie Ehrlich's original episode from 2019 again, as a reminder of why she reported and never stopped. At that time, it was actually pretty unlikely that Malka Leifer would ever return to Australia to face charges. But Dussie never gave up hope, and she was always determined to keep sharing her story no matter what, because she wanted to give other survivors the strength to speak out as well. I grew up in an ultra-Orthodox community, very, very religious, closed community, insular community, that basically had uh, no connection to the world outside of our community. In Melbourne, in East St Kilda. 
I mean, the people that I knew were all part of my community and we didn't interact with anybody outside of our community. The whole energy in the school was, you know, Jewish studies and all of that type of stuff. We didn't really have a normal curriculum. I left school probably with about a grade six English. Didn't do VCE. That would have been too much exposure to the outside world. All of the books that we read were vetted. No newspapers, no newsletters, no internet, nothing like that. So the information we got was very controlled. My parents were physically and emotionally, it was a lot more than discipline. We lived in utter fear and terror of our parents growing up. Both of them? Yeah. The expectation was, and this has been taught, like taught to me since I was three years old, was to get married and my parents found a match for me and it was an arranged marriage and start having children and bring up the next generation of ultra-Orthodox religious, you know, Jewish kids. That was pretty much something that had been drilled into me from the minute I was born, that that was my purpose as a woman in the community was to grow up, get married and have more children. What do you remember about your life and your circumstances when Malka Lifer came into your life? How um, old were you? I was about probably about 13, 14 years old around that time, starting high school, and my world was one of, I can't use any other words, but pain, um, painful. And she came into the school, kind of swept in, took everyone, you know, kind of under her wings and she was this kind of larger-than-life type of person. Everyone looked up to her and then she started kind of singling out girls. You know, she had her favourites and everyone wanted to be her favourite. Everyone wanted to have the attention of the principal of the school. Did she have a different vibe to everything else? She had a very energetic, like, kind of drive. She was everywhere all at the same time. Everyone wanted to speak to her. She listened to everybody. She knew everything. She was incredibly intelligent. And it just felt like, you know, someone had kind of come into the school and changed the school around. There was definitely a different kind of vibe. And were you surprised when her light shone on you? She was kind of talking to my older sister quite a bit and my older sister explained to me that she had confided in Malkalifa about our home life. Now, we didn't ever talk about our home life at school. That would have been seen as like a black mark against our name that we came from an abusive background. So when she told me that she had confided in her and that she trusted her, I thought, wow, this is someone that we can talk to. This is someone that understands and certain times my mum would keep us home from school or stuff like that or not allow, allow us to go on excursions or camps or stuff. There was, you know, the principal of the school calling her up and saying, you need to allow your daughters to to do this. Oh, wow. So she's really fighting for you. Oh, 100%. That's what it felt like wow. at the time. So then I started talking to the principal and she started calling me into her office and she was giving me this attention and my classmates started noticing, oh, you know, you're one of life's, you know, favourites, uh, which gave me a certain status in the class and that was something obviously that I wanted. And um, the relationship kind of became closer and closer. She would call me out, she would pull me out of class. Then she asked my parents if she can have me over on Sundays to do like private lessons, like Jewish, I don't know how to say it, hashkafa lessons. I'm just trying to think of the word you know, how you're supposed to behave as a Jewish as a Jewish girl and a Jewish woman. She asked if my parents, if I can come to the school on Sunday mornings and have lessons with her and that I shouldn't tell anybody else that this is happening because otherwise all the parents are going to be asking for their kids to have the same lessons with her. So my parents agreed because 
you know, she was kind of like this person in the community that everyone looked up to and if she asked them, then they're going to say yes, even though usually, you know, Sundays my parents never let us, you know, do anything. So for me it was like I was getting this escape out of home. I was, you know, going to spend some time with someone that really cared about me and that was fighting for me, listening to me for the first time. And that's kind of where I would say the more the physical grooming started. So emotionally, I really trusted her at that point. I looked up to her. And that's when she started testing the boundaries. Touching you or being physical with you to see what your reaction would be. I mean, it started very slowly, you know, just a hand on the knee, then a bit higher, then a bit higher. And then, yeah, she took me out of school one day. I was about 16 at the time, took me home to her house and locked all the doors in her house. And I remember this very vividly because she called up her husband to make sure that he wasn't coming home and told him that she was just, you know, home for a little bit, getting something. She didn't mention that I was there and um, lay me on the couch and pretty much just sat next to me telling me that she loved me and I was like a daughter to her and that I should call her a mother and then she yeah undressed me for the first time and that was for me shocking because nobody had ever seen me naked before nobody had like even my sisters hadn't seen me naked the modesty in the community is very extreme so you know have sports at school you'll kind of get changed in separate cubicles no one you know no one sees anybody else and i just disassociated at that point that was a coping mechanism that i had had you know as a young child and i used that then and then when it was over, it was like she was driving back to school. It was like it had never happened. It was like, okay, this really weird, strange, I don't know how to explain what happened, happened. And then we're driving back to school, you know, kind of acting like that was just the most normal thing in the world. So it was kind of this distortion of reality that I couldn't understand and that kept happening again and again. But at the same time, it helped me to compartmentalize it so that was what was happening then and then the rest of the times when I would see her at school and you know would pass each other in the hallways it was like completely normal like there was no sign that there was this secret going on yeah this is our school relationship which is completely normal and that's a separate relationship that worked until it started happening at school as well which that was more difficult to compartmentalize but i still managed to do that because i mean a there was no one to talk to and i i didn't even have the words to understand what was happening um being that we had absolutely no sexual education whatsoever and the only sexual education that i got was you know from from my older sister a couple months before I got married and told me this is what happens when you get married and this is what's going to happen. And that was a huge shock to me. I bet. And at the time I was still being abused by Lifer and I was, you know, she asked me now, why didn't you ever tell me? I mean, still then, even while she was explaining to me the mechanics of what happened, I still didn't connect the dots. That yeah. that's that what was happening was sexual because she was explaining to me what happens between a male and a female and I understood that was what was going to happen on my the day that I got married. So it took me quite a while after that, even then, to connect the dots. So when did you? And what dots were they? When did you realise, when did you think that what Lifer was doing to you was having sex with you? When did you feel like it had to stop? Uh, well, after I got married... How old I, were you? 19. Wow. 
I moved to Israel with my husband and that's when it stopped. I wasn't in Australia anymore. Otherwise it would have continued because I still would have not been connecting the dots at that point. And I moved to Israel and started this new life with my husband. I was very excited. You know, we're going to start having kids. And I started trying to get pregnant and I was, wasn't able to get pregnant. And I started feeling, because that was the purpose in my life, like, you know, that was the only thing I felt like I was supposed to do and I could do and now I couldn't do it. I started feeling like life was pointless if I couldn't have, you know, if I couldn't have kids. So I started seeing a therapist. I was quite depressed at the time. All of my classmates that had got married at the same time were having their first kid and then their second kid. And in the meantime, I'm still struggling to get pregnant. So I went to see a therapist and I started explaining to her my thoughts around sex, my belief systems, my thoughts, my lack of desire or whatever it was. It was like I was I was struggling with my husband in that way. And so she said to me, something doesn't sound right here. Like what you're telling me, there's something that's not adding up. And eventually... She said to me, I think something's happened to you. She kind of worked that out. The reason that I was seeing her was because I knew her from Australia. She had worked with Malkalifa in Australia. She knew my family. She knew my parents. And she had moved to Israel around the same time I had. So I reached out to her because she was someone I knew. So I was very hesitant to tell her who it was because I knew that she knew Malkalifa and there was no way that she was going to believe me. Uh, The next session, I told her who it was and she kind of looked at me with this absolute look of disbelief, like that's not possible. Like she knew Malkalifa and I said to her, well, I know my older sister went through the same thing as me. I had witnessed it at one point. I said to her, you can call my older sister and talk to her and she'll confirm that it's true. So that's what she did. She called my older sister. My sister said, yep, it's true also not realizing what she was doing by confirming it was true. This idea of, you know, the school is not really going to believe if it's two sisters. Who else do we know was abused? That the school will believe is, you know, and, and will definitely take their word that it's true. And we knew that one of the teachers in the school, her daughter had been abused and she was very close to Malkalifa. We said to this teacher, call up your daughter and she'll confirm with you. And she did. And that was obviously a massive shock to her. But it was having her own daughter's word that she realised this is really true. And that's when the kind of the ball started rolling in regards to approaching the board and the events that happened. Well, and then when the ball started rolling, I mean, things happened very quickly. Yeah. Midnight flip. Yeah. If you're an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse and you'd like to talk to someone about it, I recommend Bravehearts. You can start with their website, bravehearts.org.au, or you can call them on 1800 272 831. You can also call 1800 RESPECT, that's 1800 737 732, or Lifeline for 24-hour phone counselling on 13 11 14. 
But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. I believe that there were several meetings at the time. Some of that came out in my civil case. I guess we'll never really know what the truth about what was actually said and who said it and who organised her tickets outside, you know, out to Israel. But what did come out in the civil case were that there were several meetings with uh, Rabbonim, so the rabbis of the community, um, and then meetings with the board. And it was at that final meeting that Leifer was contacted and the allegations were put to her and she said, you know, it's not true, you know, this is, what are you doing to me? And within a couple of hours, the school board had paid for her tickets to leave to Israel that night with four of her kids. Talk us through the fight. She, she fled to Israel, but you have been fighting to extradite her back to Australia ever since. Where are you up to with that? What is her argument against being extradited back to Melbourne? Oh, she has many arguments about, you know, not being extradited, but her main one being that she's too mentally unwell to face an extradition trial. There have been accusations made by Israeli citizens or at least one Israeli citizen against Malka Leifer, right? Yes. I mean, the first time we went to Israel, we did this podcast with a religious organisation and we started getting all these messages from everybody. Yeah, life are taught in B'nai Brak before she came to Australia. She left under very similar circumstances. She left very suddenly. One day she was there and the next day she was gone. You know, she always was very intimate with her students in a way that was very unusual. Then there started being rumours and suddenly she was gone. Are you aware of any other people who have made accusations against Malka Leifer from Australia, from your school, how many how many people have made accusations? We know as growing up, you know, under Leifer and the girls that she was close to and as someone that was being abused by her, we recognise the signs in other girls that were being abused to her and some of them have reached out to us and have spoken to us and want to know what's going on with the case. And I would say around 15 students. I'm personally in touch with about three or four. My sister's in touch with a, a couple of others some of them have said, you know, they don't want to know about this case. They think that we're doing the wrong thing. They don't want to have any attention. They don't want to jeopardise their positions in the community. Tell us about, about your life now. Going back then, I thought, you know, I would be one of those women in the community that had, you know, 
were by now five, six, seven kids, bringing up my kids in the same way that I had been brought up. I didn't see uh, myself as any different to that. I couldn't be more opposite to that now. (laughs) Uh, My life now, I I do have a daughter. She's just eight at the moment, just about to turn nine. Yeah, she kind of lives her world between two different worlds. Her father's still part of the religious community and I'm not a part of the religious community. So that's something we're constantly balancing. I'm at uni. I did my nursing. I'm now doing a graduate certificate in domestic violence. I do quite a bit of public speaking. I've been campaigning, a lot of meetings, a lot of media. It's just been a complete, you know, 360. I never would have imagined that this is where I'd be. I mean, we weren't allowed to watch TV as a little kid and, you know. And now you're on it. it. (laughs) You're about to make the third instalment of Australian Story about your story. Sometimes I get asked, like when I do public speaking, you know, what's helped you survive this and continue going every day. And I think as a kid, when you're growing up in a, in a constant survival mode and you learn that you have to survive and that you have to get through, that has come back to help me as an adult. Every court hearing and there's another frustration and it, there's just, you know, continuous court hearings and dealing with the Israeli media and then the Australian media and that constant kind of reminder of a life that I would rather just move away from and forget. I think that kind of resilience from growing up in such an environment has really, it's really helping me today. That's amazing. Thank you to our guest, Darcy Ehrlich. We're sending all of our love and best wishes to Darcy, her sisters, Ellie Supper and Nicole Meyer, and we'll keep you informed regarding the results of the sentencing hearing of Malka Leifer on August 24. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.